93% of your life is spent indoors, but so many of our favorite moments are outdoors. The fresh air, the feeling of peace. Since warmer weather is almost here, let's make the most of it with Outer, the new outdoor furniture company with purposely designed furniture to get you outdoors more. Outer makes the world's most beautiful, comfortable, innovative, and high-quality outdoor furniture, all from sustainable materials. I love the new outdoor dining table and chairs I just bought. It looks great in my backyard, and it's the perfect setup for hosting a dinner party. Go to liveouter.com slash thefounderhour to see all the incredible products they have to offer. For a limited time, get 10% off and free shipping. That's liveouter.com slash thefounderhour. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, everyone. Before we get into the episode, just a quick reminder. If you enjoy what you hear, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That way you get notified when new episodes drop. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, at thefounderhour. Let's get into it. Welcome to a special episode of The Founder Hour. Today we have a guest whose story embodies the intersection of entrepreneurship and politics. Join us as we sit down with Doug Burgum, a tech entrepreneur turned governor of North Dakota, as he shares his incredible journey from the tech world to the political arena. From mortgaging his family farm to invest in Great Plains software, eventually selling the company to Microsoft for north of a billion dollars, to the principles that have guided his leadership style as a business leader and public servant, his story is sure to inspire. We'll also explore his presidential aspirations and vision for the future of the United States. Before we dive in, we want to remind our listeners that the political views and opinions expressed by our guests are their own and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of the podcast or its sponsors. We believe in providing a platform for open and diverse discussions, and our goal is to bring you a wide range of perspectives. As always, we encourage our listeners to form their own opinions and engage in constructive dialogue. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy our conversation with Doug Burgum. Well, Governor Burgum, thank you for taking uh, time off your busy campaign trail. I know uh, you've had some physical challenges with the Achilles uh, recently due to your uh, love of basketball. So uh, I hope you're recovering well and uh, can get some rest and get back to full speed. But thank you for spending some time with us to uh, share your story and uh, with us and our listeners. So uh, thank you for being here. Well, great, great to be with you and congratulations to both of you on your success. I think it's fantastic that you're exploring in more depth founders and their stories because entrepreneurship and innovation is so important to our country. Yeah. So before, before kind of getting into politics, you know, you, you, you've had a very successful career in business and entrepreneurship, which not a lot of politicians can say they've had. So we'd love to kind of start there early days, you know, maybe kind of even like when you were born and, and as a kid, what you were like, and then we can get into what you're up to now. So, you know, I know you're, I know you're born um, in North Dakota. What kind of kid was Doug Burgum? Like what, what was he into? What did he like to do in his for, you know, spare time? Well, it's, I grew up in this town of 300 people and uh, it was, uh, I don't re- remember spending hardly any time indoors. I mean, this was outdoors, spring, summer, winter, fall. Uh, whatever activity there was outdoors. So love, love of outdoors, love, love of nature, which grew into love of hunting, love of sports, uh, basketball, football, track, uh, whatever, whatever was going on. But I also uh, early on indications about being an entrepreneur and, and some of the stuff you look back and there's actually living proof. I mean, living, uh, living teachers and other folks, which is, you know, be like, you always were trying to start something. And, and I was so fortunate as a young kid with my parents that they uh, supported 
with a lot of curiosity and encouragement when I had ideas. So the, the first uh, one of the first businesses I started uh, was a, a shoe shine business, shoe shine and popcorn lemonade stand on on what was Main Street. But Main Street was the only paved street in town. It was a state highway. People are going through it. You know, it's supposed to be a 25 mile an hour zone and they're probably blowing through at 40 and you're down there as a kid with a lemonade stand and a, and a shoe shine stand. But it was, we, you know, we built it. We built a physical structure. It was a buddy of mine across the street. His name was Denny, uh, Doug and Denny, D&D Incorporated. We had the stand. We were making popcorn. And, you know, there's nobody that ever had a pair of shoe shine in that town. I mean, it's a total working class farm, agricultural town. But uh, we were in business one day and I had an older aunt that brought a brown paper bag full of like 50 pair of shoes uh, that must have, you know, could have been, uh, you know, saved from the depression and said, you need to shine, you need to shine all these. And we were like, we're going to be rich. I mean, look at this demand signal through the roof. I don't think we shined another pair of shoes, but we were, we did have a, we, we did have that. And I, my, and my dad was a U.S. Navy uh, 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 officer. And so I had learned how to, how to shine shoes from him. Cause you know, when you're Nate, part of the Naval regime, you got to have that. So I, he had taught me how to, how to do a good job shining shoes. So we had fun. Popcorn sales were better and lemonade was better than the shoe shining, but I've actually worked as a first business. And then our town didn't have a, a newspaper. And apparently I felt bad about this. this I'm talking like third grade or something. And Castleton down the road had the Castle Reporter, Hunter the other way had the Hunter Times. And, and, in, and when I was, you know, mentioned it, I'm sure to my, my mother, they, instead of saying, oh, that's a crazy idea, she said, well, you know, probably said, well, what would you do to, you know, what would you do to start a paper? What would you do to do that? So, you know, mimeograph machines had just come out and I, you know, basically was like an early pamphleteer, but it was called the Arthur Home News. I went and sold subscriptions. Uh, there's copies of this thing floating around this two page thing that I would learn how to do the sort of the typesetting on a mimeograph machine that my uh, uncle had. And, and we had, you know, enlisted my brother and my sister and my, you know, dad, everybody had a role. They're all listed on the masthead for what their roles were for the Arthur home news. And, and we, so we had, you know, like one summer, there was 12 issues of the Arthur home news. And that was, uh, uh, you know, again, but I, when I, when I think back about that, I just think now as a, as a parent that, I had people around me that were supporting me when I had these ideas. Like, you know, they weren't like, oh, that's crazy. That's dumb. Why don't you go play outside some more, do whatever. It's like, oh, you know, no, we don't have a newspaper. You know, what would it take, you know, to do that? So I always had the kind of the support for that. You know, you want to build a, you want to build a tree house? Yeah. Okay. Well, if you're going to build a tree house, build a good one, you know, go to the library. I think there's a book on how to build tree houses. You go to the library, you get a book, and then you start dreaming about tree houses and I've built some incredible tree houses in my life, including even with the guy that then went on to found the treehouse workshop, uh, you know, Pete Nelson. So it is, I just had a lot of encouragement for trying, you know, trying new things. So that was, it was me, but I loved uh, sports, uh, you know, the, obviously the recent basketball Achilles thing, but I've played, uh, played organized sports my, my whole life. And that was a big part of a uh, big part of growing up. And so was a, uh, so was hunting. And then so was working. Uh, my dad passed away when I was a freshman in high school. Uh, and, and that was tough, but my mom went back to work. So I understand what, what a working mother, you know, with three kids goes through, you know, trying to make ends meet. I get that that's going on a lot today in this country, but I, I, I get that. And, and then, but then every job I had, you know, working on the, working on the farm, I had a job. I was, 
you know, hauling hull, sugar beets. I mean, manual labor, you get out there and you get, you get paid buck 75 per half mile row. And I thought this is great because it's not minimum wage. The more I hoe, the more I'm going to get paid. I mean, I love the productivity aspect of that. So whether it was, you know, literally doing farm labor or, the, you know, the grain, working a grain elevator, a lot of people don't understand that, but those are some of the dirtiest, you know, they should all be an episode of dirtiest jobs. I mean, wet, wet grain, grain, wet grain, rots and it has the most putrid smell and part of that you know part of the job that you get when you're on the bottom of the totem pole at a grain elevators you know cleaning out under these legs with the rotten grain and all that so i mean i literally was uh, you know i had some of that and so working on the farm the ranch the grain elevator and then in college i had a job working as a chimney sweep and that was also a startup i started a a business of you know from scratch doing uh, doing chimney sweep as a service and that was fantastic because Minimum wage was just going from buck seventy five to two and two thirty five, and I could get paid forty bucks a chimney. And some of these houses had three chimneys, so I could, you know, I could, you know, head out for a couple hours and knock out three chimneys at one location. Come back with what the equivalent of you know somebody else in the fraternity had a you know a month's paycheck, and I got it for three hours. I mean, I, I was like a you know plumber plus electrician combined. So, so anyway, I, I always had the always had the bug growing up about starting things. That, that's super interesting, and you know, I applaud you for the, your memory. I feel like sometimes when people ask me about my childhood, you know, or growing up, I'm like, I don't know. I just kind of went to school, played, ate, and then you know, we hear a lot of these founders and on our so on our on our podcast and yourself and the amount of detail. And I feel like that's obviously important to the work that you currently do and the work that you want to continue doing is having like almost this like steel trap memory of, you know, everything that, not everything that's happened, but all the pivotal moments in your life. So, you know, I, I envy that uh, memory, but it, it looks like you did a lot growing up and obviously went through a lot, grew in a small town. Um, you know, one thing that you said that really stands out to me um, that, you know, I can relate to, but also it's something that I think that, you know, others maybe don't relate to is, having support, right? Having supportive people around you, whether they've done it or not, right? You know, you talk about your dad being a U.S. Navy officer. He wasn't necessarily an entrepreneur, but the fact that, you know, he, your parents, you know, your friends, family supported that, I think that's a big thing mentally. I think a lot of people don't take that leap of faith because one, they haven't had exposure to that around them. And two, because the people around them say, hey, Doug, hey, Nair says, hey, Pat, you know, you know, go work for somebody else. It's, you know, it's the safer way, you know, it's, it's a steady income and, and it is, it's true. But, you know, what do you think gave you that like innate level of risk taking that, you know, allows you to, you know, become a politician, to start your own business, to run for president, right? What do you think that is? I, if I was going to drive it towards one thing, I would have to say that, my parents made sure that uh, I never lost curiosity. I mean, kids, kids naturally have a ton of curiosity, just a ton of it. And a lot of our education system just, you know, can beat that out or society can beat that out of people. And parents can get frustrated sometimes if a kid at a certain age asks, you know, why this, why that, you know, why is the sky blue? You know, by the time they've asked the 200th question of the day and, you know, parents are tired and working and, whatever they can kind of be dismissive but I, I think I was fortunate to be in a thing where the uh, questions were encouraged 
uh, as opposed to discouraged. And then I tried to pass that on uh, to our three kids. And the the when and and this was something you could see because you know working in in tech and in software, you could see how with Moore's law things were just advancing really rapidly. And you knew there was going to be a time. So it was over 20 years ago and kids were all young. And I said, there's going to be a time when, when, you know, right after search came out and it was, you know, it was clunky and slow and frustrating, all of those things and connections were slow when it was, you know, when the whole internet era was just beginning, but just said, Hey, you're going to be able to get, you know, any answer to any question anywhere, anytime on any device. So this idea that education is just going to be a bunch of rote knowledge where you have to, learn stuff and then regurgitate it versus, you know, who can ask the best question, who can ask the best query. And so with the kids are growing up when I would, you know, the days when I was driving them to school, uh, you know, I drop them off in the morning and say, Hey, look, you know, I would never say like get good grades or behave that kind of stuff. I would say, Hey, ask good questions. And then at mm-hmm. dinner that night when they at home, I'd say, tell me the best question that you asked today. What was the best question you asked? Then you go to parent teacher conferences and the teachers would be like, man, you know, your kid isn't the best behaved. He doesn't get the best grades. Uh, I wish he showed up more, but man, he asked some really hard questions or she asked some really hard questions. And when they're not there, it's the class misses them because they're driving the dialogue in a different direction with all these questions. It's like nonstop. And so I, I, I would hear that back, you know, from at the parent-teacher conferences. So I, I knew that it was driving home. And then, of course, now here we are, you know, AI is launched. Who can write the best query? I mean, it's going to change entire industries from, you know, what did you memorize to, you know, who can ask the best question? So I, I think I was I had a jumpstart where I had people that were trying to encourage curiosity in me about sort of why not start a business as opposed to, hey, that'll never work. But believe me. Uh, in North Dakota, in a lot of places in the country, there is plenty of culture that tries to squash entrepreneurs. And I got plenty of stories about that, too. Talk to us about how um, you eventually ended up uh, sort of getting involved with Great Plains Software and how the, what the origin story was there and, and why you decided to do that after college instead of perhaps going down a more, to Narcissus' point, safe, uh, quote-unquote, route. Well, I was, I was maybe because of this uh, curiosity, I was always uh, a little restless, a little undecided, a little untraditional. I mean, I, the only, I mean, all the jobs I described earlier to you, every job I had growing up was a job where you took a shower at the end of the day, not at the beginning of the day. I never, ever thought I would end up as a, in some kind of sort of, you know, white collar thing. And people said, you're a smart guy. You know, you know, what about being a lawyer? No, what about being a doctor? No, I mean, none of these things were anything that was attractive. So undergrad at North Dakota State, I was a, a university studies major. It was a, a degree that was designed for undecided freshmen. And you were supposed to transfer out of it at the end of, by the end of the first quarter. And if not then, by the end of the first year, then they found me my junior year. And they're like, hey, we got this junior that's in university studies. So kind of cut a deal with the university and said, hey, if I you know, write a paper that explains all these eclectic classes that I've taken across, you know, six different colleges within the university. If I can explain that, then there do. So there's uh, in the lore of, of my alma mater, there's a thought that it's the uh, maybe the first person that graduated in university studies. So I have a bachelor of university studies, get on the bus. That's got to be the funniest name of a major I've ever heard. 
Yeah, well, it's a, it's not that there's no BA and there's no BS. It's just, you know, get on the, get on the bus. It's more uh, of a BS. It's, it's leaning yeah. on the BS side. Yeah. It is. But I did, you know, back around, uh, around 2000, I was, I was honored to get a, a honorary doctorate from NDSU. And I said I would do it at one condition at graduation if the 18 kids that were crossing the stage who were university study majors, if I got to be the one to hand them their diplomas. So uh, it's a, it, there's still a little bit of a legend in the lore there, but I was undecided. Then I, you know, I, I, I had a, a, a professor that was also, he was a world war II vet and he was, he gave me a copy of Forbes magazine. Like in March, the deadline was like later that month is March. I'd never heard of a graduate program in business. Literally had never heard of, it. I did not know there was a thing called an MBA. And he, uh, he said, Hey, you know, read this article. And it was a cover story in Forbes spring of 78 that said, you know, here's the, the, the this new thing. And, and it listed these six schools in there, you know, Harvard, Stanford, Dartmouth, uh, Darden School of Virginia, Wharton, Chicago. Uh, you know, there was no internet. I look it up the whole thing. He says, hey, you might like to do this thing. So I, I punched out applications during a spring ski trip with, you know, four other guys driving in a car to Colorado, Wyoming, and Montana over spring break, you know, trying to write these uh, applications none of which probably would have got me into any of those schools. But at the last second, there was a guy had written an, a, a story locally about me as a chimney sweep. And they had a picture of me sitting on top of a chimney with a top hat and tails. It's 10 below. The steam's come out. It's black and white. There's snow on the roof. There's another picture of me, you know, on a rope, like like it looks like a, you know, Chilkoot Trail, you know, Trail of 98, you know, mountain climbing thing, you know, getting up on the roof. Anyway, so I put the... I put that article, photographed that article and put it on the application and then went six for six to those schools. And I know the story from the admissions director at Stanford that said they had about five slots left out of 300 and they get the last thousand applications into last minutes, which are usually all junk. And he walks out of his office and everybody's none of it's automated. None of it's digital. It's all paper. Everybody's crowded around one desk and and he goes, what's going on? Everybody like get back to work kind of era. And, and they said, oh, there's a chimney sweep from North Dakota that applied. And he's like, give me that. And he grabbed the application and a cup of coffee, went back in his office and read it. And apparently that happened five other times too. So I, you know, being an entrepreneur can help, you know, create new pathways because that's was certainly non-traditional. And so I, I got in directly out of undergrad and, and there was, you know, there was only two guys out of 300 that were younger than I was. Everybody else had worked, you know, in Wall Street or a consulting firm for two to four years. So I was definitely coming in as a non-traditional. And then you asked about Great Plains. Well, then I, I, so I was undecided. You didn't have to pick a major in undergrad, didn't have to pick a major in grad school. And then I had, you know, a bunch of job offers coming out as a good job market. And I took a job, uh, with does, in what year, just for the frame of reference? 1980, 1980, coming out of business school mm-hmm. and came came out of there and took a job with McKinsey because I'm like, well, I don't really have to decide what industry. I get to work with a bunch of industries. Yep. So I'm working in, in there in Chicago and I'm two and a half years into my career and I'm walking down the hallway one night in January of 1983. And there's Adil Zanelby sitting in a corner conference room at two first national plaza in downtown Chicago with 26th floor with an Apple II computer with VisiCalc. And I had just spent two days crunching numbers, 
you know, we ditched the TI. I think the HP 12C, you know, calculator had come out or the earlier version of that. So you're literally, literally doing paper spreadsheets and crunching numbers. And it was probably about six o'clock at night because I just come from a partner's office and I'd been working, I'd done two all-nighters and he said to me, hey, nice work, but, you know, what if the price goes up by this much? And what if the competition does that? And what if this? And he asked me about a dozen what-if questions in my head. I'm going two hours, two hours, two hours, you know, for every what-if question, because that's about how long it would take to calculate these models that we built uh, by hand with a calculator on paper. And, and then Adil nicknamed Scratch, he went on to be head of McKinsey India. He just hit the button and he said, check this out. And boom, the calculated spreadsheet, you know, in a couple minutes, chug, chug, chug. And I just stood there and looked at the thing and it's like, wow, that is going to change everything. That's going to change everything. Certainly going to change what we're doing. And from that moment on, I was like, I've got to get into the PC software business some way, somehow. And people like, oh, you know, you're a visionary. No, it's like I got hit in the head with a two by four, like 12 times right in a row there. It's like, this is, this is it. And then, and then the thing, I mean, you've read, you've read the, the stories about the hidden factors of success. Well, almost everybody that started a big business in the, the PC software business was born within about 18 months of each other right. uh, back thing, because we were all at that age where we didn't have families and we hadn't gotten a job working for IBM with a pension where you're all locked in and taking the secure route. And there was a group of people that had enough flexibility as well as that sort of met the moment. And that, and then the whole class of 80 at Stanford turned out to be amazing because a bunch of guys and gals in my class, I mean, the, the list of, super successful people from that class, unbelievable compared to almost any other class because of the timing of the location plus Silicon Valley, plus all of that. But I, I was determined to make it happen someplace, not in Silicon Valley. That's another story, but yeah, I, I saw you did uh, befriend Steve Ballmer while you're at uh, Stanford. And I know like eventually Microsoft ended up acquiring um, Great Plains. How much of a role, cause I want to talk about like, you know, MBAs, there's always like an argument of like, is it worth it? Is it not? And then people talk about the pros and the cons of it. And obviously a pro is the types of people to your point that you meet and befriend and work alongside and then eventually build, you know, relationships with out in the real world. Uh, how much of that did played a role, I guess, eventually when it came time to sell Great Plains? Well, it was played maybe a more important role when it was to decide to, to jump in because uh, I met Steve was in the class behind us and Steve uh, was didn't finish his second year. I mean, he he can't, he's brilliant. He was you know the most brilliant guy in his class. Anybody will tell you that. And super super smart guy. Well, he was taking all the second year capstone classes his first year. So then you know because you say how does a second year meet a first year? A lot of times you don't. Well, the last quarter of my second year, when I'm the youngest guy in my class, virtually taking the capstone class, I ended up on a study team with five of the gunners, as they called them, from the first year that were all you know, the, the 5% that were taking second year classes their first year. So I'm in a, I'm in a, in a group with, with Steve and, and all the other, some top folks for this thing. So that was how I got to know him. Cause we spent a lot of time together working on that project that was part of this capstone class. He, he, uh, he went to work, you know, he had job offers from everybody. He won all the scholarships from Bain and BCG. I mean, he was, he won everything and he didn't take any of the jobs where he was getting paid scholarships. He went to work for his buddy, Bill, and went back, you know, went to Seattle. And they had about 35 people at the time, at the time he joined, but then he didn't come back for his second year. So he and I left, both left the same year uh, in 1980. But in 
you know, fast forward to 1983, after this, this thing, there was uh, two young guys who'd founded a computer store in Fargo, uh, Joe Larson and, uh, Joe Larson and, and Roger, uh, and Roger and Joe were going to had an Apple computer store and they were, had started to write software in the back for our Joe's, uh, you know, uncle or something like that. They were trying to write some sort of accounting software. So they had this idea and we met through connections in North Dakota. And, and when, uh, that was, we, we met, we went to connections, we met, we had lunch. I mean, we, they came, we had dinner in Chicago and we started talking about it and they were, didn't have a business plan for the software side and they didn't have any capital, but they were entrepreneurs that started this computer store. So we started putting our heads together. And then that's when I, I, when my dad passed away, I got 160 acres of farm ground. I literally mortgaged the farm, bet the farm. And then that became the seed capital for Great Plains Software. And we had an agreement that they would shut down the computer store. Uh, and we created a new entity with, that was called Great Plains Computers. We created a new entity called Great Plains Software. I put the seed capital into Great Plains Software, wrote the business plan, and I came in as a minority partner in that in that thing. And so we, you know, that we started with like less than 10 people and away we went. You know, 14 years later, we were, you know, had a fantastic IPO. And 18 years later, we were an overnight success story and got acquired by, by Microsoft. But the decision with, with Steve, when I called Steve before I wrote, you know, before, you know, writing the check to go in, which is, Kind of, hey, are you guys ever going to get into accounting software? Because by the time you got to 1983, Microsoft was huge. They had like 200, 250 people. They were yeah. big. You know, they were like, they were dominant. You know, think of that 250 person Microsoft company. Crazy. You know, so it, it is a, a uh, so anyway, that was just a, uh, an interesting kind of perspective. But I wanted to think, and Steve told me, he said, you know, over my dead body, we're never going to, we're never going to be in accounting software. Uh, so that was what he said. And then, you know, what's impressive is, is more, even more so than, you know, building this company is where you built it, right? Like North Dakota, you know, it's, it's obviously not San Francisco when it comes to software, like San Francisco has always been the the place where some of these, you know, I, I know Microsoft was, is more so built in Seattle, but like, you know, the, the Silicon valleys of the world. And there's so many arguments about, you know, geographically, do you have to be there to build a software company? And you did it in North Dakota. And I, I mean, I'm sure there have been other successes that have come out of there. Um, but I'm just curious from your perspective, how important do you think it is to be in a certain kind of region or area when you're building a, a, a business, especially in tech? Well, this is, a, this is one of the, you know, conventional wisdom or the narrative with a capital T and a capital N, which is you can't, you couldn't, you can't build a software company in North Dakota. You can't build a tech company in North Dakota. You can't build it someplace. And of course, to build successful companies, you got to attract talent and capital. But I had grown up watching all of the top talent in the state. All of the kids that I'd grown up with were all leaving. I mean, North Dakota was literally shrinking. It was depopulating. We were one of the, we were the only state in the 1980s, 90s, and early 2000s that had lower population in total than as a state we did in 1930. So it wasn't like a little problem. It was like a big problem where we've got, a, you know, all the young people are leaving. And when the young people leave and then they're the ones that get married and have kids, then your birth rate drops even further. And then you end up with this demographic tree that's tilts really old and, and it comes even harder. So, but this idea at that time, 
the computing companies were, they were hiring, they were hiring from North Dakota universities, all the best people were leaving. And they used to call it IBM. You guys maybe are too young, but IBM and the bunch, the bunch was Burroughs, Unisys, NCR, Cray and Honeywell. They all had operations. The bunch all had operations in Minneapolis, St. Paul, the twin cities. And IBM had a big operation in Rochester, Minnesota. So IBM and the bunch were all pulling people out of North Dakota universities. And I was like, Hey, maybe we can peel some of those back here and then maybe we can grab some of the ones before they leave and we can get this talent, you know, back to North Dakota as a source of talent. Cause a lot of those folks wanted to be in stay home, be close to their, the place they love, be close to their, you know, their grandparents, that kind of stuff. So that was the strategy. And we just, we've turned it into a plus instead of a, a minus. I mean, I remember when, you know, I wrote, wrote the, uh, I wrote the checkout. We went to Comdex. I'd done my research. Okay. Understand you've gone to Stanford, you've gone to McKinsey. You think that there's, you know, not, you know, eight, maybe 10 accounting software companies on the planet. And then you go to Comdex, you know, spring Comdex a few weeks later, and you open up the trade show book and there's 63 accounting software companies in there. And you have a complete freak out because you're like, did I just literally, literally bet the farm and I'm going to lose this thing like immediately? Everybody had more capital. Everybody had, you know, bigger cities, more name recognition, all that. And we we were trying to differentiate ourselves. And then you're like, we're from where? So our, our first uh, first trade shows we went to at Comdex Spring and Fall, we we gave roping lessons. I mean, literally like rope a steer. Like it was like rope a winner. I mean, we brought hay bales and split rail fences and you know, we just played up the fact that we were there and, you know, and you can build trust. I mean, trust was key in those days. So much software didn't work. You could, you'd buy stuff, you couldn't get it serviced. So we were really trying to build relationships around trust as well as around uh, technology. And so we were all standing there in, in cowboy hats and chaps, giving roping lessons. And then what, you know, who, there's a startup in Atlanta at Spring Comdex, little cable thing. No one heard of cable news. CNN, they filmed their Comdex story from our booth because we were given roping lessons. So we were all over CNN. Uh, we did the thing that fall. We're on the front page of the Las Vegas paper out of 1,200 exhibitors, you know, that's like Comdex, you know, you know, roping in customers or something. I mean, it's like the headline on the front page. So, so you have to take what people might perceive as a weakness and turn it into a strength. Mm-hmm. That, that That's a great lesson, you know, the last thing you just said about, you know, turning that weakness into strength. And, you know, along with that, just the, again, just the jumpstart, right? The, the fact that you had at the time the vision and you, you know, mortgage your family's farm that I assume, you know, wasn't very easy to buy at the time. I mean, I don't know. Uh, you know, it's not easy to buy that kind of stuff now. Um, and you just said, you know what, we're just going to have to do this. Like, were you scared at all at any point throughout that journey before you guys sold? I like to use the word uh, posh entrepreneurial fear because uh, sometimes that's the, adjective, that's the adjective. I like it. Yeah, sometimes if you get, I mean, if you get scared, sometimes if people have high, if your anxiety goes up, your creativity goes down. But so I tried to stay out of the, the unscared mode, but from for eight years, I mean, 83 to 91, it was never certain for eight years if we were going to make it. I mean, it was always like, Hey, we've, you know, we've climbed this one Ridge, and we're at the top. And then you'd look sort of, you know, like Lewis and Clark, you know, trying to get to the Pacific. And then you look ahead, oh, there's another mountain range ahead and it's even bigger. So you start down, you start up again. So there's a lot of that. But, you know, the other thing which uh, we had very clear intention 
from the beginning, growth is a decision. It's not an outcome. It's a decision. And if you decide you're going to grow and you decide you're going to dominate or lead a market space, then all your decisions flow from that. You can't go at stuff with incremental steps. You've got to keep pushing all the cards in. And we would hire people and say, look, you're going to work for a company where, you know, we've got our strategy, our game plan, and everybody on here, we're, we are, we're flying like a, like a jet fighter plane and there's fog up ahead of us and there's a mountain range in that fog. We are trying to gain altitude, but we don't exactly know whether or not we're going to clear it. It might rip the gear off of the plane or we could just disintegrate when we go into it. But we are, that's, that's what we're doing. We're, if we clear it, uh, we're going to be the market leader and it's going to be amazing. But that was, we talk about that when we were hiring people. Mm-hmm. So everybody was on board, which is we were, had this go for it attitude. And then, and then you do that in a city like Fargo and I'd have, the, the patron big business guys locally would, you know, see you at some place and put their arm around you and go, man, I see, you know, you're hiring a lot of people and you're, you know, you maybe just slow down. I mean, there's, it's like, it's like, Hey, I try to explain I'm in a market that's growing 50% minimum a year. If we're growing at 25%, I might be the fastest growing company in Fargo, but I'm losing market share. I've got to grow at hundred percent or more a year for a bunch of years. And so otherwise I'm losing share. People can't comprehend when those markets are exploding, uh, what it takes. And I think some of the companies that, that, that take the more, you know, conservative traditional path don't end up with a story like this because you've, you've got to have a risk appetite in an exploding market to just decide. And like I tell people growth is a, it's a choice. It's not an outcome. You know, when it comes to legal help, I'm tired of hidden fees and complex billing structures. Isn't there a better way? Well, that's exactly what Decrypted Law offers. They're pioneers in transparent flat fee pricing for startups. And guess what? They even have a subscription service for fractionalized general counsel. Subscription service for a law firm? That's right. Decrypted Law is revolutionizing the way legal services are consumed. For a flat monthly fee, startups can now have access to top-tier on-demand legal counsel. Wow, that's a game changer. No more bill shock, just clear, predictable costs. Decrypted Law, they're not just breaking down legal complexities, they're making legal services more accessible. Learn more and contact them at decryptedlaw.com. Mention the founder of our podcast so they know who sent you. Love soda? Listen up. Introducing Olipop, a new kind of soda that's actually good for you. It's the fastest growing beverage brand in America. And here's why you'll love it too. Gut health matters. And Olipop has your back. Two out of three Americans suffer from digestive issues, and Olipop tackles that with a soda that tastes amazing. With nine grams of prebiotics in every can, it's the gut friendly choice you've been waiting for. Now let's talk flavors vintage cola, classic root beer, my favorite, orange squeeze, classic grape, and more. It takes me back to those childhood days. And guess what? Olipop has way less sugar than traditional sodas. Vintage Cola only has 2 grams of sugar compared to the 39 grams of sugar in a regular Coca-Cola. Pretty impressive, huh? But it doesn't stop there. Olipop's drinks are non-GMO, vegan, paleo, and keto-friendly, with less than 8 grams of net carbs per can. They've got something for everyone. Ready to give Olipop a try? The Founder Hour listeners can get 20% off their next order with the code FOUNDER20, F-O-U-N-D-E-R-20. Head to their website, www.drinkolipop.com, 
or find Olipop in over 22,000 stores nationwide. The biggest fortunes aren't made on Wall Street. They're made way before startups hit the stock market. Consider Mike Walsh, a name just like any of ours who invested $5,000 into Uber. And that investment money, it grew to a staggering $24,827,400. Such opportunities were once behind closed doors, reserved for those with connections and vast fortunes. But that's no more. Start Engine is tearing down those exclusivity walls and making startup investments accessible to you and me. With Howard Marks, co-founder of the gaming giant Activision at the helm, Start Engine and its 1.7 million users have fueled startups with over $1.1 billion. This is no longer just an investment platform, but an investing revolution. And it gets better. They're inviting you to be a part of their journey. With just $500, you can join their live fundraising round and own shares of this revolutionary company. Click the link in the episode description and jump on board before their investment round wraps up. Talk to us about your leadership style. Like, What are the sort of core principles that have guided you first as an entrepreneur and business owner and then obviously currently in, in public office? Like, what are, what are those principles that you've sort of always you know, led by? Well, they've been so consistent for so long and they're easy. And they're, we've talked about them now at the state of North Dakota. They're on the governor's coin. But one of them we've already talked about, which is curiosity, uh, which is imperative. You have to have team members that bring innate curiosity to what they do so that you give them a job description and then they might go, what if this isn't the right job description? Maybe I should be doing this, you know, slightly differently. Why am I doing it this way? I could be doing it better, faster, cheaper, smarter. So, you know, the, the people that just keep asking the, the why questions are wonderful to have around. Surround yourself with that. Second one is gratitude, which is we lead with gratitude. I mean, everybody gets frustrated in these things. And, you know, even in those eight years of, of entrepreneurial fear, are we going to financially make it? I mean, there was times there where I literally I cut my own pay to make sure we could make payroll for the team. I mean, there was like times where, okay, we've just got to, you know, keep, keep driving forward, but the gratitude, because you can have gratitude for, for your customers, your partners, your vendors, your team members, uh, your supporters, your investors. I mean, and it's a bucket that now I always feel like, why are people so, so scarce in their use of gratitude? Because it's, a, it's like, you're sitting Nobody sits at a desk, but if you were and you're the CEO and then you've got a bucket next to you and the bucket's called the gratitude bucket and you dish some out and you give it to, hey, I'm going to, we're going to hold awards for all of our amazing team members, you know, next day. Oh, how about our vendors? Let's do an, let's do a vendor appreciation day. Not a, like, we're going to, uh, you know, go battle with our vendors and try to chisel them down on price. No, we held a vendor appreciation day. We brought them in from all over the country, hotel people, airlines, printing companies, FedEx, UPS. I mean, everybody that we wrote an invoice to, we said, you're coming here. We told them, we're trying to grow 100% by next year. If you want to get our business and you want your business with us to grow by 100%, figure out a way to do it cheaper, better, faster for us next year because you will help us win. And when we're winning, you're going to keep winning because the next year we're going to grow by 100% again. And we so we had, we had people that like huge companies like UPS and FedEx going home and like, who are these guys in Fargo? They've completely turned this upside down. Normally, you know, they would be giving us an award for being the biggest customer in North Dakota, but instead we were giving them an award for figuring out a way to do the thing for us better, faster, and cheaper, because that's how we could get our costs down. So we did that. And, and we, you know, customer appreciation, partner appreciation, totally new, new heights on everything that we did. You know, our top, you know, inner circle partners, trips around the world, 
uh, stampede events, thousands and thousands of people coming, black tie award ceremonies that people, you know, usually at a conference, you know, people like all leave because they want to get home by Saturday night because uh, they're sick of the three-day conference. We'd have people that would fly in on Saturday because they didn't want to miss the customer appreciation thing. I mean, we everything was flipped because we we were just bathing everybody in genuine, authentic gratitude nonstop. And guess what? It is a great business model. Gratitude is like fantastic. So that was the, the second one. And then uh, we talk about uh, humility, which is an odd one, but Humility is the thing that is missing from some of these companies. They get successful and then they think what they think what made them successful is something like, oh, we're so smart or we're so clever or we're so whatever. Good looking. I don't, I don't know. Pick something. And if that's not why that's not why you were successful. And you have to have the humility to understand that. And I would say there's two kinds of humility and these are in, in show up in great leaders. But. Part of the humility is to understand that whoever you talk to knows more than you do. I mean, a dissatisfied customer knows more about your company than you do sometimes as a CEO. And so you've got to listen to the people that are the hardest to listen to. And I've taken that as governor. I mean, I, you know, my first address state of the union, I talked about a guy that I, uh, a guy that was struggling with meth addiction who was 19 years old. And I learned more about addiction from him than I had from all the people telling me about how we should do behavioral health in the state of North Dakota. So you can always have the humility that you can learn from anyone. But the second humility, which is even harder, which is a real going to be a test for our country and for the world is, is, is the humility to say, I believe something to be true and then actually admit, wow, that's not actually true. That thing that I believed dearly, that thing that was like so important to me that I thought was like, you know, uncontestable. It's just there's something in human nature and human psychology where people won't let go of something once they've committed to it, it, that it's at the belief level. And and for a leader, if you, you know, believe something to be true, man, you can drive big companies right off a cliff. I mean, take take the you know, pick any example, you know, you take famous ones like Kodak, you know, if you believe that that film is never going to go away. You make different decisions than if you go, hey, film is going away. And you have to have the humility to go, this amazing country with the best brand, one of the top 20 brands in the world actually could go away. Have that kind of humility, then you'd make different decisions. And the guy that I think is actually the best of this, of any CEO in America right now is Satya Nadella. And Satya, Satya was a direct report of mine for seven years when I was at Microsoft. Seven years I worked with that guy. And the thing that he, in addition to curiosity, in addition to gratitude, he had humility. He was never trying, he, he might've been the smartest guy in the room. He never ever wanted anybody to know that. He wanted to be the most curious guy in the room. He wanted to say, gee, you know, is Apple our enemy or is Apple our partner? I mean, I mean, there's some decisions he made like right on day one that added billions of dollars of market cap. And now what is Microsoft, the two and a half trillion dollar? I mean, he's He's taken it from four hundred billion to two and a half trillion. He's six x. Yeah. Uh, he's an acquisition cap. machine. Yeah, I mean six x the market cap during that time. And I would say that you know it, it was humility was one of the things that really drove that. And then the last one of the four values, which is which is necessary, is courage. You have to have you have to have the if you have all these other attributes, you still can have people that won't take the step to bet the farm or bet their reputation or put their, you know, put their life out there, understanding that, wow, if this doesn't work, this could be a big failure. 
You know, there could be a lot of I told you so's coming at you. You have to be willing to just say, okay, I'm, I'm willing to take that risk and go for it. And, and that same thing, private sector going into politics, people said, yeah, you're not going to win. You can't do that. You can't make that transition. We're like, okay, I'll, we'll, we'll, we'll take that bet. We'll see if it doesn't work out. And we're going to have to have the willingness to, to, you know, when we jumped into the governor race, people told me you can't win. Just like they said, you can't build a software company in North Dakota. My whole life, I've had people telling me you can't. You can't get you can't go from A to B because of where you're from or who you are. Mm -hmm. So, Doug, obviously a lot to dissect there. And I love, you know, your, you know, your, your philosophy and the values that, you know, you talk about there. And I think there's a lot that uh, those listening can take away, whether they're in business and politics, they're still in school or whatever they may be doing. I think that everything you said is something that all of us should strive to have. Those are not values that perhaps are crazy you know it's not a value like power where we're seeking that you know authority and seeking that the, the ego kick that you get but more so things that will relate into any aspect of whatever you're doing uh, i'm speaking of curiosity what i'm curious about you know is along this time when you are in business were you married at the time i was i got uh married uh for the first time uh in 1991, uh, and that marriage produced three amazing children, uh, but ended about seven years later. And, and then, uh, was, so I was single for a long time, got married late, three amazing kids, and then was single again for a long time. And now I'm, you know, married again to the amazing, uh, first lady of Catherine Helgus. And we've, we've, uh, uh, so that's, that's been that, but it was the, the marriage part was when we were building Great Plains, public company, uh, and then right about the time we got acquired by Microsoft was when we were separated and then divorced. But mm. it was it was tough because, I mean, I had, we had an arrangement. I had the kids half the time. So, I mean, I had three young kids, and I when I talk about dropping them off in school, I would be taking kids to school and, you know, being a single dad and hanging out with them like crazy. And then the next week I'd be, you know, off to Seattle or off to the rest of the world because I had people working for me in over a hundred countries mm -hmm. when I was running Microsoft business solutions. So that was, that was an interesting kind of rhythm uh, to sort of be living, uh, you know, living a world with uh, kids. But even when I had the kids, you know, put them to bed at night and then Seattle's two hours behind and then get on your computer. And then, you know, you'd be banging out, uh, you know, emails till 2 AM because everybody at Microsoft started working in the evenings. I mean, they were not an early morning company. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I was managing managing those two things back and forth. But when I left Microsoft in 2007, it was really, really as much about the kids as anything. I had not wanted to move them from Fargo to, to Seattle. They were starting to be of that age where they were getting involved in sports and theater and other stuff. And I'm like, I can't, you know, two weeks a month is not enough to see them because I'm missing, I'm missing stuff. So I made a decision to come back uh, in 2007 uh, and not, you know, get out of that travel and retire. That was a retirement decision. And then they asked my oldest was a 12 year old at the time. How's your dad's retirement coming along? And, and uh, the local paper asked him that. And he said, he said two words, epic fail. Uh, it was, <laughs> it was his yeah. assessment was that within a year, within a year, I'd started uh, two new companies. One of them called the Kilburn group named after my mother and she she had grown up in Fargo. My dad grew up in this little town of Arthur where I grew up. And we were, uh, that was company was dedicated to uh, initially saving historic and buildings in downtown and, and, and then converting them in a way that would be, 
helping build, you know, healthy, vibrant cities. So it in, included, you know, save for buildings, figure out a way to, you know, build a partnership with the K-12 school system on uh, youth arts, connect them with the local Plains Art Museum and, you know, put that whole thing together. So you're saving, you're saving historic buildings and improving educational programs. Then we did another four buildings and that became the, the you know, the homeless clinic and the new American clinic and all the things we did that. So then we got, we just started doing more and more of that. And then we realized that the, the, and some of this was coming during a time when I still understood that, you know, Microsoft being here as a campus, because they, when, when the 2000 of us, we, you know, we went public in 97 at Great, at Great Plains, had this great run, you know, what is one of the top five IPOs in the history of NASDAQ in terms of first day appreciation. I mean, we went out at 16, closed at 32 and an eighth the first day and never looked back. I mean, so that was, you know, fantastic for shareholders and for team members and for our partners and everybody that we created, uh, you know, participation opportunities for everybody along the way. But then when Microsoft came along, we said no twice. I mean, we were a public company. They were a public company and they wanted to acquire us and they want to acquire us for cash. We said no. You know, and they want, oh, we want to acquire for cash and we just want your product. No. It's like, so the third time around, it's like, no, we want to acquire you for stock and we're going to take all 2002 team members. Every all two, I mean, twelve hundred of them were in Fargo, four hundred were rest of North America, four hundred rest of world. Every single one, two thousand and two Great Plains team members, the next day were a Microsoft team member, and fifty one percent of those two thousand and two were women. We had the highest percentage of female, part you know, female employment of any of the software companies in Silicon Valley or anywhere around the world. So that was you know great. So we became a separate reported division of Microsoft. And we all, uh, whatever. And then some of those folks that started out in small towns like I did, uh, Dave O'Hara, Tammy Reller, these folks went on to having the highest level jobs at Microsoft. I mean, Tammy Reller was chief marketing officer for the whole Microsoft reporting to Balmer. Uh, and, you know, and she was a college hire, uh, you know, for, you know, intern, summer internship college hire here in North Dakota. Dave O'Hara is uh, been the, the CFO for all the commercial business right now. I mean, he does, he just got done with the, you know, the, what eighty billion dollar Activision deal? He's a small town guy from South Dakota that uh, was part of Great Plains, and of course I already mentioned you know the connection with Satya you know was part of our business solutions team when we were working together. So that is uh, you know been fun to see uh, you know all the folks there that went on and had you know went on and had these amazing careers. But the things we started here, the other thing I started in Fargo was Arthur Ventures, co-founded that with my nephew James Burgum, and that's now you know grown grown and expanded. I, you know, left that when I became governor, but that they're headquartered now in Minneapolis, they got 1.1 billion under management doing a, you know, venture investing for mission driven, you know, B2B cloud mobile software companies. And that, that business has been, you know, it's just sort of stayed in our wheelhouse of trying to find that. And for a while uh, on the website, it was Arthur Ventures would invest in uh, anybody that, you know, met the criteria as long as they were located outside of Silicon Valley. I mean, it was a specifically like an anywhere but Silicon Valley fund because there was so much money there. And I knew all these guys, some of them were classmates, but towards the end, they were, they were deciding who to invest in and whether or not they could drive to a, a board meeting. If they couldn't drive to the board meeting, they wouldn't invest because they didn't want to spend their time flying around. And I'm like, that's a crazy way to allocate capital. And of course it made valuations higher. So we've, Arthur Ventures has had exceptionally high returns investing in the, everywhere but Silicon Valley approach because there's there's little Great Plains success stories all over this country and people with small towns. I mean, when we had those 2,000 team members, uh, the 
which I think I said, you know, 1,200 Fargo, 400 rest of North America, 400 rest of the world. They were from 220 different towns in North Dakota, small, small town kids. I mean, we, you know, we, we, we just completely blew up the model that there's no talent here. I mean, the talent, there's talent everywhere. Speaking of the transition from entrepreneurship and business to public service, uh, you know, I feel like it's more recently, we've seen a lot of former entrepreneurs and business people, successful business people want to run for public office and want to be governor president. Why do you think that is? And why do you think, uh, someone who's been successful in business would also be a successful chief executive of the country? Well, I think there's two components. Part's been, what did they do in the private sector? Because uh, it's different if you've been in, uh, say, say if you've been a real estate developer and a TV celebrity, that's different than if you've actually been in the, you know, operation side of software, because think about what we've, what we've done. And then think about what I did after that in Arthur Ventures. I mean, some of the companies that I was involved with Atlassian, you know, one of the great success stories of the last decade, uh, you know, two, you know, Scott and Mike, the two co-founders uh, who you should definitely have on your show. Uh, those guys, you know, they cold called me and asked me to become their first chairman. And they were like, Hey, we, we want somebody who's started when they were really young, stuck with it for 20 to 25 years. We want someone who understands, uh, you know, taking company public. We want someone who's built boards. We want someone who's chaired a board. Uh, we want someone who understands all what's happening with, uh, you know, computing and that. And then, in a, and they were asking, they called and asked me, cold called me. They said, you know anybody? And I said, well, yeah, Scott Cook, founder of Intuit. He's that, he fits that perfectly. I've known Scott since they had, you know, 10 people. You know, if you're looking for somebody, he'd be your guy. And they said, well, no, we want somebody who did it outside of Silicon Valley. I'm like, oh, now I get why you're calling. Uh, so so that's how we got connected because they had had the same thing sitting down in Australia. These guys have got a, what, $49 billion market cap company. And, and every venture company that met with them 10 years ago said, well, we invest in you, but you need to move to Silicon Valley. Well, you know, uh, you know, Rich Wong and the guys at Excel are pretty happy they didn't put that criteria on their initial investment. So yeah. it is a, you know, so there, there's, there's, there's like that. And so we, you know, whether, you know, Avalara, which uh, was a Great Plains partner company, uh, you know, they, you know, those guys got bought by Vista Equity last year for $8 billion. Success Factors I was chair of. Uh, that was a, you know, company that is got bought by SAP for $3.8 billion. These are, they're, they're, they're just, they've been, what we were able to do there, we've been able to repeat at other companies in terms of leadership and values. But all of those companies had one thing in common. They were all helping businesses run their operations better. So if you're saying, I'm going from the private sector into government, the one thing that government needs is what I've been doing my entire life, which is helping businesses operate better, smarter, faster. And wow, there is so much cost that can be taken out. We took $1.7 billion out of a of a $6 billion general fund. We got 27% on spending our first four months in office and all the trains kept leaving on time. I mean, it's it, you can do it, but you have to understand how to do it in a way where you still have this mindset where we say we have to treat taxpayers like customers. Hmm. You know, we're not, we weren't cutting in an ideological way, like oh, we're going to shoot this department in the head. Because in that department, there are people that care deeply and they're doing good work. They just have been, they've had jobs that have never been, that have never evolved through the market pressures of competition. So inside of every job in government, 
particularly at the federal level, there's 10 to 20% of every federal job that is some mind-numbing, soul-sucking work that even that employee doesn't want to, that government employee does not want to do that. And we know that in North Dakota, we can make the work more meaningful and we can get rid of work that doesn't matter. And, you know, this year we, we passed like, what, 51 more red tape reduction bills. And we actually crowdsource from the public. Tell us what we can do to get government out of your way. And, you know, and that's why, I mean, North Dakota is on track to have the highest GDP per capita uh, in the country. We're the highest of any Republican-led state right now. Governor Brigham, what I'm curious about is, um, you know, there are more people in this country that are operators or work on the operations side than they are versus folks that are visionaries, leaders, executives. Um, how, and I think this ties back into when you first started your software company that you guys were this small town company and you had to put on these, you know, trade shows that attracted people. How do you spread the message being from a small town, being from a smaller state, not necessarily being on a big political stage before, how do you spread that message to people that are like you, that work every day? They are the blue collar workers, they're the white collar workers, but they're in the weeds building, whether it's their own businesses or they're working for other businesses. That's what they do every day is they try to make processes more efficient. They try to make their work a lot faster, a lot more quick, a lot less expensive. How is, obviously, I think most people resonate and would agree with you, but agreeing with you and then actually supporting you and knowing what you're made of, the marketing aspect are two very different things. How do you get the word out? How do you get from being Governor Doug Burgum of North Dakota to being the Republican presidential candidate that goes up against the Democrats in late 2023, early 2024? The path to victory is is fortunately uh, fairly straightforward, which is the the nation has always looked to the early primary states uh, as an indication. I mean, right now, I mean, ignore every national poll you see, and you can even kind of ignore the national, I mean, these debates, the debates right now are just, I mean, that's like, what is that? That's not a presidential debate. That's not how, you know, either of you or any company in America would select their next leader. I mean, it's infotainment, it's political theater, it's whatever. I mean, it's like, oh, well, let's pick the guy that has got the quickest retort and the biggest insult. That's who we want. I mean, you wouldn't hire that. You wouldn't do that to hire, you know, you're a superintendent for your local school. You wouldn't hire it for your daughter's, you know, third grade soccer team. And you wouldn't do it as if I'm, you know, sitting on any board I've been on, that's never been a criteria. And I don't think it should be the criteria for uh, the country either. But I'd say, if you look at the early states, I mean, Iowa and Hampshire, the people in those states show up at event after event after event. There's no just running a TV ad or making a snappy retort that is that you know builds trust and endearment with those people where they say, this is someone that we actually have met. I mean, the, you know, the joke in both those states is, you know, they say, do you like XYZ candidate? And they go, I don't know. I've only met them three times. I mean, they, they want to actually meet the people in, in living rooms and backyards and small town events. And so we're, you know, we're out there putting in the groundwork in those in those states. And I think you're, you're going to see uh, in those states, you're seeing that there's uh, plenty of room for an alternative uh, because people are people are looking for an alternative. Some people like what they've had in the past. Others are looking for alternatives and they're shopping right now. And, and so those I think the, the uh, and we've got many months to go between when the voting starts in January and we'll, we're going to be there 
We're going to be where when the voting starts in January and when we're there, we think it's going to be you know interesting because there's been plenty, all of the pundits that tell you the race is over, it's determined, it's all this other stuff. I mean, look, even in recent history, uh, you've had unknowns, in, you know, when Iowa and New Hampshire that were that were at this time before polling in the single digits. So we, we, we're not trying to do something that's never been done before, but we do need to get the message out because there's much more here than the remarkable success we've had in the state of North Dakota. There's the three decades of, of, you know, building businesses, creating high paying jobs, competing with, competing with, you know, China. I mean, I, you know, the first time I was, I was a young kid, I was coming back from setting up our first international dealership in Australia stopped in China on the way back in 1989 and we we did not we did not even have an Australian version yet much less a Chinese version and walked into a street market because I heard that you could buy Lotus 123 and uh, a bunch you know MS DOS and a bunch of other stuff for cheap over there and I said do you have great plane software and the guy said yes and he went over and you could buy modules of great planes for a buck on a five and a quarter five and a quarter inch floppies and I was like it was, you know, we were selling that stuff for $5,000 and they were selling it on the street then. So, I mean, I know, I mean, China's stolen every piece of software I've ever made, every company I've mentioned. So we just, you know, having someone who's not only got the business experience, but also got the global experience to understand how this economy works. And then you think about how AI is going to change every job. I mean, technology's already changed every job, every company, and every industry. It just hasn't changed government yet. And that's why we've got this bloated 2 million, you know, I mean, if it was, if 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 the, federal, if the federal government, if the federal government was a public company, I mean, yeah, like what we got, the federal government got its credit rating downgraded. I mean, there'd be a story every day about you know bankruptcy or something yeah. for the federal government if we didn't have our own printing press. Right. right. How do you see? Speaking of uh, technology and innovation, how do you see that shaping? government and the future of the United States? Because it seems like one of the biggest internet memes these days is when we see these like hearings and, you know, it's like Tim Cook and all these like internet leaders that are, you know, in front of Congress. And there's just like this, there's no one's understanding each other and nothing ever gets done. And I'm curious, you know, (laughs) how do you envision that, you know, improving? Well, it would start if you actually had somebody in the White House that had ever worked a day in tech. I mean, that would help. I, I know I, I can't necessarily fix the Senate hearing. I'm smiling because in 1998, uh, I was there. There, you know, history may not record it, but part of my sleeve made the cover of Time magazine. But when Scott McNeely, who is a classmate of mine from Stanford, you know, Vinod Kosla, another classmate from mine from Stanford, you know, those were two of the four co-founders of Sun Microsystems. But Scott McNeely, Bill Gates, uh, Michael Dell, and then Jim Barksdale, who was there instead of Andreessen because he was the CEO. Andreessen had invented the the browser, but it was those four, and then myself, uh, and then those guys were, uh, uh, you know, those guys made the cover, and then they cut it off. So I always joke that I part of my part of my cuff made the uh, cover of Time Magazine. Uh, but you know, it was a six hour hearing. It was a six hour hearing, and I was you know looking at senators. You know, Orrin Hatch and, you know, Ted Kennedy and others with staffers, you know, coming up and handing them a sheet of paper and they'd read a question to these industry leaders that were leading the world. The U.S. was leading the world in technology and they were, you know, had all of these questions that made no sense. I mean, they, they literally, the, the questions, and then I, and I watched Zuckerberg and others, you know, Tim Cook, go to these Senate hearings and it's like, here we are 25 years later and the same thing is happening where we've got 
Leaders are going to bring them in. We're going to have some political theater. We're going to ask them some tough questions. We're going to look tough. We're going to issue a press release. And then all they do is for any anybody that's spent a day in that industry is like, wow, they do not literally even know what they're talking about. What do you what do you see, speaking of the presidency, what do you see as the biggest sort of challenges and obstacles that you would face um, being in that position uh, just in general? Well, I think the biggest challenge that we face as a country right now is that uh, we've got an administration that doesn't understand that, the, you know, the number one threat to the country is uh, China and their, you know, long-term plans of global dominance. You know, they, they think there's, you know, every day there's something else that is the, you know, the, the existential crisis of our time. And it's not the thing that actually matters because we're, you know, we're on a path where we're across our economic plans, our energy policy and our national defense and our national security is we're actually empowering dictators, you know, destabilizing the world, hurting the economy, hurting working families, hurting our competitiveness. I mean, it's just bizarre. I mean, it's not like any one of these things is like, oh, I'm running because we need a 10% course correction. It's like all of part of why I'm jumped in this race is, you know, I clearly don't need to do it. I'm not trying to sell a book. I'm not running for VP. I'm not running for a cabinet position. But literally, I having had people work for me around the world who didn't have the freedoms we have, people that were working for me, didn't have the right to vote, you know, didn't have the right to assemble, didn't have the right for free speech. I mean, you see that and you're like, this country is absolutely worth fighting for. And then you see policies that are literally 180 degrees in the wrong direction. And then the inflation right now that is resulting from a number of these policies is so offensive because it's not just stealing people from their paycheck. Now, these people that have worked their whole life to put their savings away, their savings may end up being 20 or 30% less than what they thought they'd save because of the corrosive effect of, uh, of inflation on their buying power. And, and so I, I'm, you know, very passionate about, about, you know, the, particularly those three topics, economy, energy, and national security. So there's a number of things you'd have to do on day one, to try to you know drive you know drive that in a different direction, but it's going to take at the core it's going to take trust because right now we've got so many Americans that don't trust the federal government, they don't trust the institutions, they don't trust the DOJ, they don't trust vote voting, you know our elections. They don't. I mean the, the level of trust is so low. We're literally at the brink of having democracy fall apart, and and then it's a seven by twenty four cable news clickbait thing on the thing that's making the cable news company's money and it's making the social media company's money. And those are the things that are actually that divisiveness has become yeah. a huge profitable business for those folks. And that's actually aiding and abetting that divisiveness is aiding and abetting the decline of our country. When we actually do have to unite, figure out we can solve all these problems that are in front of us. And we have to realize there's real threats to us in the world because people would like the like the U.S. to fail. People don't think of that. People get up. Death to America. I mean, this is it's real. Governor Burgum, I, th I feel like, and I speak for probably a lot of people here, I don't want to say most, but maybe it's most, um, that it just feels like, I know for myself, I am just so sick of politics, right? Like there was a point in my life, I studied political science in college. I went on to go to law school. So I was always surrounded by that. I really enjoy enjoyed politics and the political discourse with people on both sides of, you know, the aisle. I think for the past decade, I've been a registered no party preference because I'm sick of both parties uh, for the most part. Um, you know, I know that in this stage of the campaign, you have to 
more so tailored to the Republican Party, Republican voters. But at the end of the day, the job of president or the job of any public officer is really to unite and represent both sides or the no sides or the people in the middle or uh, the far right, the far left, whatever it may be. What is your message to the people that are just, they're just sick of it. They don't want to hear the BS anymore. They don't want to deal with the entertainment. They don't want to deal with the raw, raw politics. They, all they care about are the real issues, the education of their kids, their health, saving money, being able to start and grow a business, the stuff that matters to me and Pat and all of us on a day-to-day basis. What's your message to them? Well, I think that my message is the same message uh, that I've been, uh, you know, been delivering, which is that on the trail is that I think people have gotten the, the idea of the presidency wrong in some ways because the powers of the federal government are actually determined in the Constitution and the states created the federal government, not the other way around. When the states created the federal government, they delegated responsibility to the federal government. And that includes things like the economy, like making sure the dollar is secure, like national security, which includes energy security and food security and border security. And then there's a whole bunch of the rest of the stuff that is all these divisive things that everybody's lobbing back and forth literally aren't the job of the president. And in a country that's as diverse and broad and as many time zones, as many cultures, many geographies, is not going to get resolved. And what works in New York is never going to work in North Dakota and not and not there. And if and I don't I think those are things that have to be decided uh, locally. I mean, can be decided because it actually says the Tenth Amendment. These are reserved to the states, comma or to the people, because even there's some states that are overreaching and doing the job that should be left to parents. Right. So I, I'm a I'm a limited government guy, and and I'm a a freedom and liberty guy. And we just got to get the federal government focused on the things that matter. Because if we get the economy right, we get energy policy right, and we get national security right, every single American is going to feel differently. Their lives will change. I mean, their economic prosperity will increase. They'll feel safer. Their kids won't have to go to, you know, kids and grandkids won't be going to World War III. I mean, there's all these things. So we're, we're really focused on, you know, any leader of any company or a state or the country has to understand what is the job, what is the mission, and how do you execute that mission? And right now in this world of celebrity politics, I mean, Posh, you are in the majority. The majority is you. The majority is no longer belongs to, you know, independence is larger than either Republicans or Democrats. And the exhausted majority includes a bunch of people that are still registered as Republicans and Democrats that are also fed up with it. And so, but that group has to show up and vote because if, if, if the primaries are going to be driven by the extremes, we're going to end up with uh, the kinds of politics we've had. So somehow there has to be an awakening of that, of that exhausted majority to actually show up and go, no, we, we want, we want a uniter. We want a problem solver. We want a, someone who has got, you know, the skills and the capability and the understanding and the empathy and the experience and the character, the integrity to actually go out and get this thing done. And that's why we're, we're in the race because we don't see anybody else at all. That's got a combination of the, of the business skills and the execution now at the government level. Cause when you're a governor, you get a front row seat on where the federal government is out of bounds, which mm-hmm. is that's, that's the most valuable part about being governor. I mean, it's, it's an executive role job, but you know, I will never be a Senator or a Congressman. I have no interest in putting on a Jersey and lobbing bombs at the other side, that stuff drives me absolutely nuts. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. you know, and we say in North Dakota, you know, we, we you know, when, when there's a blizzard in North Dakota, guess what? We plow the roads for Republicans, independents, and Democrats. 
You know, we work yeah. for we work for everybody. You know, when we got a, when we're trying to solve the problem of hundred, there's a hundred and ten thousand deaths from overdoses in 2022 in America. You know, the first lady of North Dakota has been courageous in sharing her story. She battled addiction for 25 years. Now she's in recovery. The idea that we've lost over four Vietnams worth of casualties to fentanyl poisonings under the Biden administration and have an open border, you know, to me is that's a disaster. And but th- those overdose deaths aren't happening along party lines. They're happening to everybody of all economic levels. I'm sure you I'm sure, you know, I know I've got friends who've lost sons, daughters, nieces, nephews, uh, friends, moms, dads. I mean, everybody knows somebody now. How can you not? We're losing 300 a day in our country and and nobody talks about it. Everybody's talking about something else. I mean, they're talking about the latest clickbait. And so we, we want to get to work at the issues that are really affecting everybody. And some of those issues have nothing to do with party lines. Yeah. Governor Bergman, a non-political, non-business. You know, I know North Dakota doesn't have their own basketball team in the NBA. So who's your, who, who's your go-to team? Who do you support? Well, listen, I, when I was living in Chicago, the, uh, every team in Chicago was horrible. Right. I mean, that, you know, the, the Bears were that was when the Bears had 300 people in the stadium and people were, yeah. you know, you've seen pictures of the paper bags over their head. The fans yeah. didn't want to be identified. So it was easy in the uh, 80s and 90s after I was long gone to become a Bulls fan and kind of ride that train. And I actually did go to Michael Jordan's basketball camp in 1998, uh, right after he'd won the, uh, the sixth ring. And that was an incredible, incredible experience. The, the, you know, he, people say, oh, it's MJ's camp. He had all the top college coaches there. The, co- the two coaches I had for the week were Dean Smith and John Thompson. Those mm-hmm. are my coaches for a week. And my mm-hmm. buddy from North Dakota that ended up as the MVP of the camp, there was 80, 80 people there. They divide you into to eight teams of 10. Uh, he, his, his coaches were Roy Williams and Lute Olson. Wow. It was, just, I mean, the whole thing, coach K was there. I mean, it was, I mean, all the referees were refs that, uh, that watched, uh, Michael play, uh, in college. I mean, he get these guys from the ACC and the NBA that were friends of his, I mean, the whole thing was incredible. And, and so I, uh, so anyway, I, be, I was a Bulls fan. Uh, more recently I've become a, uh, I got a little bit on the Bucks bandwagon cause I've got a, a buddy there that is, uh, a friend of mine that is a part owner of the Bucks, and then another classmate of mine, Bob Cagle, is one of the owners of the Warriors. So it's been easy to be kind of a bandwagon NBA guy. But just to show that I'm not just a fair weather sailor, I've been a lifelong Vikings fan because everybody in Eastern North Dakota, you know, grew up cheering for the Vikings. And so I've gone through four, as in my youth, I went through four traumatic Super Bowl losses in short succession. And, and I, you know, always think where could I've ended up if they'd ever just, if the Vikings had just won one of those. No yeah. one can say you don't have anything in common with President Obama then. So there you go. <laughs> just to, just to wrap this up um, with one last question, you know, we, we think about the presidents that we've had in the United States since its inception, you know, and, and in the early days we, we didn't have technology and social media and all these things. And so maybe they weren't under the sort of microscopic lens of, of every little move that they're making and, you know, critique here and critique there. And, and, but, you know, in, in certain ways it is good to have that and hold that accountability these days. And so I'm curious in your perspective, you know, we hear a lot of things about those presidents and a lot of it is hearsay. A lot of it is passed down from generation to generation in the history books. What is your legacy? Assuming you were to win the candidacy, uh, what is a legacy you hope to leave behind? 
Well, I think the legacy, if you said in a Berg administration, you're successful to get uh, two terms to get it done. You got to you know earn that, but you get two terms to get it done. America is going to be healthier. Uh, it's going to be safer. It's going to be more prosperous. Uh, and we're going to be less divisive. I mean, those are the things. I mean, and these are things that every when I had people working for me all over the world, it didn't matter what race, creed, religion, what part of the world you came from, there was common values and common aspirations that everybody had. Everybody wants their kids to have a better opportunity than they do. Everybody wants their kids to have a great education and be safe when they go to school. Everybody wants, uh, you know, their, you know, communities to be thriving. Everybody wants to be, you know, the next generation to be more prosperous. You, you bottle it all up and call it the American dream, but that's the dream. That's the dream of the world, too. I mean, everybody wants that. And we have the possibility to do that. We're the, we're the one country. I mean, we're competing with people that have walls to keep people in. I mean, think of that. I mean, think, think Iran, think Russia, think China. There's no freedom. There's not like freedom of, you know, whatever. But, you know, you're down, down at the border with the North Dakota troops. 98 countries in that one sector I was at three weeks ago, people from 98 countries have risked their lives, including risking their lives with the cartels who are exploiting them. And, and saying, yeah, you want to cross here, pay us 3000 bucks. I mean, the cartels are exploiting, cartels are making so much bank on, on this migration. Uh, but you've got, you know, the equivalent of, of Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, Delaware, and then throw in Montana. That's six states. That is the six to seven million people we know of that we've done paperwork on, not computerized, but paperwork on that have come into our country under Biden, six states worth. Okay. Those people are risking their lives to get here. Uh, some of them all because of good intentions. Of course, there are people that are coming from terrorist watch list nations that are, you know, coming across as well. So there could be a security risk down the road, but those people are, are they're coming here because they see this as an opportunity. We have an opportunity as a country, if we get it right, if we get the border secure and we get, uh, we figure out, you know, we can continue to be just like any business. You win when you attract talent and attract capital. We can be the place where everybody in the world wants to be. We can take America and actually have our largest cities be someplace that you would feel comfortable going into the downtown with your family again. That when a, a visitor from another country is like, I've been waiting to see America. I've always heard about XYZ, beautiful city. And then they go there and they're like, what? And then we've got you know, what do they see? Crime, homelessness. That's the, that's America on display. And, and every day in America, there's things that are happening that are really great. And I see this across, you know, small towns or communities like Fargo or places where we're campaigning. And there's nonprofits you've never heard of that have almost no money. They've never gotten a federal grant. They're literally working on tens of thousands of dollars a year, not tens of millions. And they're making a difference in people's lives. There's people giving back. And like my hometown, if, you know, if a farmer gets cancer and can't get this crop off, you know, you know, people, don't, they don't steal his crop. They all rally together and help him harvest it and put it in the bin for him, you know, and they and, and then never ask for anything in return. I mean, that's still happening. I mean, the best of America still happens, but you never hear about it because all we hear about is the bad stuff, the divisive stuff. So we have to get back to. Uh, a little bit. I and mean, I don't want to go back to, you know, as far as Tocqueville, but I mean, you know, when he came to America, he's like, this place is different. People are volunteering and helping out. And there's Goldman Sachs is doing a study on rural small businesses. They're going to release it in North Dakota next week at an event I'll be at. They, they're, they're, they're going to include in that, that in small businesses in rural, rural communities, 90% of those small businesses 
even if they're struggling financially, give back to their community. They volunteer, they give time, they buy t-shirts, they support the local team. Here's 50 bucks, you know, whatever. Large cities, 20% of small businesses give back to their community. So the connectivity of community, that, that caring and the connection that comes with really building communities, even a block at a time. I mean, that's how we can get back to an America that we could all say is, uh, uh, you know, get back to, you know, a place where everybody can be, you know, you know, proud and like, Hey, I want, I want my kids and grandkids to grow up here. So, yeah. so anyway, I, that, I mean, I'm very optimistic about the future, but we've got to change the direction we're going right now. And that starts with leadership that people can trust. Right. Well, Governor Gerbergen, this has been a pleasure. We, we appreciate you joining us and uh, we wish you a speedy recovery with the Achilles and uh, all the best on the campaign trail. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it, Pat. Posh, great to be with both of you. And uh, again, congrats, congrats to both of you. And thanks for all the inspiration you're doing for 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 founders everywhere, because uh, our country is built around innovation and entrepreneurship. And uh, the last closing thought I would say is people say, how are you getting done in North Dakota? We get together every day in the governor's office. We put our hands together and we say innovation, not regulation, innovation, not regulation. And every problem that the federal government is trying to solve with with regulation, whether it's choking off American energy industry, we can, you want decarbonized fuels? We got them. You want to, you want to solve, you know, issues around the environment? We can do that with innovation. It's not about saying we're going to outlaw X and everybody going to subsidize Y. That does not produce the outcomes. That's centralized controlled economies. Exhibit A, take a look at what happened to Russia. Take a look what's happening in China right now. You can't manage the dynamic economies with with uh, regulation and subsidies. It doesn't work. We're trying to do it here, trying to turn everything into a utility. We have to have competition. We have to we have to allow markets and entrepreneurs. That's why people want to get here because this way people want to move to America because this is an opportunity to, to really make a difference, to change the world. And innovation is the one thing that always has for our country. It always has and it always will. And it's the one way we can compete with the world and win. It's how we can win the Cold War with China is with innovation, not regulation. Thank you, Governor Bergman. And, you know, like Pat said, best of luck. Thank you for spending time with us uh, and enjoy the Labor Day weekend. I know you need the rest. So we hope to see more of you. And if you come out to California, specifically Los Angeles, we'd love to have you here. Thank you. And if I look red, it's because I turned the air conditioning off to get rid of the sound. And it's it's <laughs> over 90 degrees in Fargo today. So turn it back um, up. It's got, it's, this, at least in this end of the studio, it's gotten a lot warmer since we started. <laughs> yeah. I feel the same way. It's, it's And I get hot real quick. So, <laughs> Thank you, sir. All right. Thank you both. <laughs>